Turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Samuel 13 and 14. Two long chapters, but I want to kind of cut into what God is saying to us there. First, from 1 Samuel 13 and 14. We're going to see several different views presented to us in these chapters. It made me think of different perspectives. I was talking to a, to a, to a man, neighbor, downtown Anderson, and um, on his front porch... And he said, man, I look good today, don't I? I looked at him, and right beside him was, I don't know how big you can buy a beer can. It was as big as I had seen. You know, I'm guessing 32 ounces. And then beside it was a, a whiskey bottle, and it looked like he had drunk most of both. And so I quickly decided that if he said he looked good, I was going to agree with him because he was bigger than I was. But I definitely had a different perspective. I just didn't share it that morning. We have different perspectives, different views on lots of things. I, I was just thinking, man, just look in the mirror and you'll have a different perspective. Speaking of mirrors, do you have one of those side mirrors on your car that says, has this message, objects in mirror are closer than appear? I think they should say objects in mirror are losers. That's just my perspective. Think about it. <laughs> but anyway, because they're behind you, man. You know, they're losing. But they don't say that. Different perspective. See, I got a different perspective than you guys. Take something like a glass of water then. That's easy. The optimist says the glass of water is half full. The pessimist says the glass of water is half empty. The capitalist says, man, if we can put that in a cheap plastic bottle and a cool label on it, we'll make a fortune. You know, it's just different perspectives of the same thing. We have different views. And when we look at 1 Samuel 13 and 14, we get two views of people as well. I think we get this human, earthly view and then we get thrown in this very clear, sometimes scary, heavenly view. And I want us to think about our own lives from those two perspectives. How do people see you? And there's different perspectives. And then how does God see us? We have primary subject in 1 Samuel 13 is Saul. And we have two different views of Saul. First of all, let's look at the human view. Chapter 13, verse 1, Saul was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 42 years over Israel. Just think about that for a minute. The perspective is, he's, he's a long-reigning king. 42 years is a long time to do the same job, and we're going to see not only did he do it, he did it pretty good. Look at verse 5, now the Philistines assembled to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen. Catch how many they got. And people like the sand which is on the seashore in abundance. And they came up and camped in Michmash east of Beth Haven. Now just imagine you're the guy that's got to fight people as numerous as the sand on the seashore. That's Saul. Any leader that can take me into that battle and be successful, I'm going to think pretty good of him. And I think the people had a, a pretty high view of Saul because of what he was up against all his life. I'll keep reading. Verse 6, when the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, 
For the people were hard-pressed. Then the people hid themselves in caves and thickets and cliffs and cellars and in pits. And some of the Hebrews crossed the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. But as for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. They're scared to death. Verse 8, now he waited seven days according to the appointed time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. Just to refresh your memory, Samuel had already told him, go, get ready for battle, and I'm going to come and offer a sacrifice before you go into battle. So that's what it's saying there. Samuel hadn't come yet. It's the seventh day. To this point, Saul was obedient. He was doing what he had been told by God through Samuel. Verse 9, so Saul said, bring to me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him and to greet him. But Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, well, because I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the appointed days and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash. Therefore I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I've not asked the favor of the Lord. So I, I forced myself, and I offered the burnt offering. Samuel said to Saul, You've acted foolishly. You've not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not endure the Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded. And I'm going to stop right there and we'll um, just tell you the rest. Because, it, you know, it would take a long time to read it all. But they do go into battle. Sacrifices have been made. Saul readies his men. But while they're trying to decide, you know, just how we're going to attack this numerous Philistine army. Uh, Jonathan, we pick him up in chapter 14. Jonathan and his armor bearer, they're not with the rest of the army and they're by themselves. And, and, and Jonathan's praying and says, God, you know, you don't need all of us to wipe these folks out. You, he doesn't have his Bible, but he's like, we can go back to chapter 5 when you wiped them all out without anybody. He said, I'm just praying, Lord, do you want me to be an instrument of yours to beat the Philistines? And God says, yes, go. And so Saul and his armor bearer go up this mountain, and the Philistines see it. And they said, wow, people are coming out of the holes in the ground to get us, and it scares them to death. And the Philistines start hightailing it out of there. Jonathan and his armor bearer killed about 20 guys. And it scared the Philistines, so they start running. Well, that sets a commotion. you got that many people starting to run away from you. So Saul and his troops say, well, what's going on? You know, And he, he calls the priest together. What's going on? Should I go? Should I, should I, should I attack now? And well, they eventually do attack, and uh, they defeat him. So that's that story. Then we're in chapter 14, verse 47. Now. And don't miss the word now, because see, that's, that's what I'm trying to get you. From chapter 13, verse 1, to the end of chapter 14, it's like, all of this happened now. Let's get back to what I was talking to you about. I was talking to you about how good Saul was. Now, verse 47 of chapter 14, when Saul had taken the kingdom over Israel, we saw that he did that, and he did it for 42 years, he fought against all his enemies. We saw one of those first battles. 
on every side against Moab, the sons of Ammon, Edom, the kings of Zoab, and the Philistines. So not just the Philistines. And wherever he turned, he inflicted punishment. And he acted valiantly. And he defeated the Amalekites. And he delivered Israel from the hands of those who plundered them. And that's the human historical summary of Saul's kingdom. He was good, and he was good for 42 years being a soldier and a king and a leader and defeating people. Wherever he turned, he inflicted punishment. He was one of these kings that he does not back down from a fight. I don't care how big you are or how numerous you are, he had the reputation of going for it. And then verse 49, he had sons. What a son. He had Jonathan was his son. Just mentions that. He had a daughter. Verse 49, she was, she was good. Verse 50, for a while anyway, till she marries David. Uh, 50, verse 50, uh, he had a wife. Verse, uh, last part of verse 50, he had a captain, tremendous captain of his army. Chapter, uh, verse 51, he had a dad. You read about his dad, one of the finest men in the Old Testament. Verse 52, now the war against the Philistines were severe all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any mighty man or any valiant man, he attached him to his staff. He had a strategy. Anytime he saw a strong, mighty man, he said, I need you in my army. And he persuaded the mightiest, the strongest, toughest men to be in his army so that he could continue leading and delivering his people. Just a tremendous leader. Um, it was in the news this week, you may, some of you remember back, the uh, Iranian hostage situation under uh, President Carter. It was probably the thing everybody says that led to his downfall in such a landslide election when Reagan comes in. Because we had 52 Americans, and uh, I think it was all Americans or uh, other people in Iran for 444 days. The news every night through that was one more day of hostage. And why are the Americans not going to rescue these people out of Iran? And Carter went in a couple times and failed. And so he just wasn't known as being a strong military leader. Reagan comes on the scene. He says, I'm going to solve this. Doesn't really solve it, but it happens that the, uh, all of our guys were um, rescued the day after Reagan's inauguration. Uh, he, but he just, it just shows up with that. That kind of perception, Reagan's going to have military strength. We're finally going to get a leader. It's going to take us somewhere. That was the perception of Americans that elected Reagan. That was the perception of the Israelis when Saul was king. We've got a man of great strength. He's not going to back down. He's going to fight the fight, good or bad, and he's going to be successful. So as you read... 1 Samuel 13 and 14, you can't help but to come away with that perspective. Um, not only, you know, was he good militarily, great family, wife, captain, strategy, all of the right stuff. He was great religiously. Now, the verses I read to you were crucial. Uh, chapter 13, uh, you know, verses 8 through 12, that kind of situation there. The indication is that the people did not scatter because Saul had this little religious ceremony. 
Samuel was supposed to do it. He was the priest. He was the one in charge. Saul was supposed to wait. But Saul says, I forced myself. I had to do it. People were scattering. I was going to lose, lose the country. I was going to lose my army if I didn't do this little religious thing. So I forced myself. I did it. I had a ceremony. I had a service. I had a sacrifice. I led. And the indication is people quit scattering. So from a human perspective, people said, wow, he's a religious leader too. He does what needs to be done. No, he wasn't called to it, but he did it. I'm behind him. And the people didn't scatter, and they stay there with him. We've got a lot of folks today that think, you know, that's, that's a good thing. We, um, we push ourselves into things. It's clear when Samuel shows up, it's like, man, that was terrible. Why did you do that? But Saul said, no, that was a good thing. The people quit scattering. And all throughout the church today, we have people pushing themselves into things they're really not called to be doing. Saul was not supposed to do that sacrifice. He was not called to do it. God didn't want him to do it, which becomes clear. I was um, examining somebody for an elder candidate one time, and I asked him, I said, why should I support your elder candidacy? And he looks both ways, and he says, because I'm as good as you've got. And I thought immediately, you're not called to be an elder. I said, because we don't need good people. We don't need good men. We need God-called men. There's a big difference. Every man is to be good and godly. Every woman is to be good and godly in the church uh, of Christ. We don't need you to be good. We need you to be God-called. Saul was a good leader. But he wasn't a God-called man for that sacrifice, for that religious service. Samuel was called to that task. Saul took it, pushed himself into it. And no matter what you're doing for the kingdom of God, whether it's in the nursery or serving the Lord's table, whatever is in there, the, the, the question you need to be asking yourself, is this what God has called me to? I need to be doing what God has called me to, not pushing myself into stuff I just like doing. And stuff I like to do, I like to do stuff that pleases people, don't you? Stuff that gives me a good human perspective. My fellow humans like when I do this, I'll do this. And sometimes you may easily be pushing yourself into it for this human perspective, and God is not called you to that at all. We need to be constantly thinking, what does God call us to do? Like, um, I mean, Saul did many kind of religious things in uh, chapter 14, verse, verse 19. It's interesting, his prayer, I didn't read it, it says, uh, while Saul talked to the priest, you know, everybody's, this commotion, the Philistines start running. While Saul talked to the priest, the commotion in the camp of the Philistines continued and increased. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. I mean, think about that. Paul says, I mean, Saul says, we need to pray what, and ask God what to do. And then, so the priest comes in, and they start praying, dear Lord, da, 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 you know, real kind of quiet. And he keeps hearing this commotion. And the commotion's louder than the prayer. And finally Saul says, ah, hush up, let's just go. It's like, I don't have time for this. That, and again, people, hey, this guy's all in. And he jumps on it. 
But we have this little tidbit thrown in. Maybe that wasn't the smartest thing. Chapter 14, uh, verse 24. Now the men of Israel were hard-pressed on that day, for Saul had put the people under oath. So Saul had prayer, he had religious services, he had vows and oaths that he made people take. Um, chapter 14, verse 35. Uh, Saul said, Disperse yourself among the people. And he said to them, Each one of you bring me now his ox uh, or his sheep and slaughter it here. So again, Saul doing these religious things that uh, need to be done. He looked very religious. And then you get to chapter 14, which I read to you, begin at verse 47. Now. Now let's sum it all up. And God gives us this summary. Saul was a great king, great leader, tough man, valiant, had sons, daughter, wife, captain, father, strategy, had it all. Where does that leave us? Um, when the history books are written about you and me, and it might just be an obituary, you know, I think looking around the room, you know, it's going to say good stuff. I mean, Everybody I know in this room, there's good things to say about you. Even if you just have to say well, you had a good father, you had a good mother, you had a good wife, you had a good husband, you, you, you did good stuff in your work, you did good stuff in your home, you showed up at church on Sunday, you prayed, you, you took vows. I mean, this kind of history that's written about Saul, you see, can be written about all of us. From this human perspective, you look pretty good. And if I have to write the obituary, I'm going to say all of those good things. Is that why God gave us 1 Samuel 13 and 14? Just to tell us how good we look. Maybe we need a little more balance. And as I kept studying this passage, you begin to see balance thrown in here. There always seems to be kind of an overemphasis on the human side. And isn't that just like us? We're so absorbed in these kinds of things that I've just described about the life of Saul. We, we post them on uh, Instagram or Facebook or Pinterest or we have our own website and our own blog. And it seems we just get absorbed or obsessed with all of these things about our lives from this human perspective. So much so that we tend to ignore God, and you just don't see God in the picture. How does God look at us? What is God's view of us? We're pretty much absorbed in our own view of us. Well, let's look at God's view of Saul. You, you clearly, as you read this, it's like you've got two Sauls, completely two different people, and you don't have two people. You have two views of the same person. So this person who looks so good, when God speaks, he's not saying these good things. Chapter 13, 13 and 14 are crucial. 13, 13 and 14. Samuel said to Saul, so this is God speaking through Samuel, you have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel. Now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after God's own heart. And the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. What God commanded you. All right, so what's God's view? 
Saul, you're willful. You do your own thing when you want to do it. You're disobedient. You disregard my commands to do what you want to do. You're just foolish. Why would you go against the ways of God, God's law? God is the one who established you, and he would have established you forever. You're disobedient. Disobedient, foolish, willful. That's God's view. Think about how God might view us. Even though everybody's saying good stuff, God steps in and says, uh-uh, it's not good at all. I mean, do, do, you, do you get the impression, as Saul's doing any one of his religious services, you know, God's in heaven, and he says, whoa, Saul, that little religious thing you did there when everybody was scattering, man, dude, that's impressive. You kept them all together. I'm pumped. I'm excited. You're good. See, you don't get that perspective. That seemed to be the view of the people. But it's not the view of God. And so many times, we're in the same situation. People are scattering. Our money is scattering. Or our life is fracturing. When You've got a spouse that's constantly talking about, okay, I'm about done here and I'm walking out. What do you do to hold it together? It's like the troops from Saul are scattering. And you say, okay, I'm going to get a Bible and read it. No, I haven't been reading it, but I'm going to read it. I'm going to pray. And you think God's in heaven and he says, you know that, that thing you did with the Bible and that little prayer? I'm impressed. I, I like how you're holding it together. You think God really gets impressed with some of these things we do? Or, or you finally showed up for church. Oh, wow, I'm impressed. Or our, our business, our, our money is, is going. And so many people say, you know, I, I know God has the Lord's day for us. I know that's his law. I know it's his standard. But, you know, if I don't work, if I don't get this, this, this done, oh, I'll show up for church. I'll, get, I'll work early. I'll go to church. I'll work late. And God, you think God's in heaven saying, dude, I'm impressed. You got it all done. You held it together. Or does God say, disobedient, willful, unimpressive. I would have made you an enduring house if you had just kept my standard. There's so many times we don't put God in the picture and we ignore his law and his standard and it's not ours we do our own thing and sometimes it's very religious and it's impressive to people but God says but I didn't call you to do it that way I wrote you very explicit directions and instructions on how I want you to live your lives and then you go and do your own thing not impressed at all God sent to us Christ so that we would not do our own way, but God's way. And it's clear throughout the scriptures. Um, foolish. Jonathan is thrown in as, as the, the other side of the story. Chapter 14, verse 6. Jonathan said to the young man who was carrying his armor, Come, let us cross over the garrison of those uncircumcised, perhaps the Lord. Seeing that, I, every time I see the word perhaps in Scripture, I've started circling it because it's just, it's just a wonderful description of the right 
humble character we should have before God. God is not obligated to do anything for us. And Jonathan gets that. Perhaps God will be merciful. Perhaps God will work through us. We're just two, but perhaps that'll happen. You get in the heart of Jonathan or in the picture of Jonathan a man who surrendered to God. God, I'm just going to surrender to you. I'll just be a channel for you, a vessel for you. Perhaps you'll use me. That's the picture. See, you didn't get that picture of Saul at all. But that's the picture you get of Jonathan, which I think is where God wants us to go. Look at uh, the picture of Saul, chapter 14, verse 24. Now the men of Israel were hard-pressed on that day. So they're winning, and still Saul's oath has messed them up. Saul had put the people under oath, saying, Cursed is the man who eats food before evening, and catch these pronouns, until I have avenged myself on my enemies. So for Saul, it's I, myself, my. For Jonathan, it's, Lord, these are your people. This is your battle. I'm your servant. It's yours, yours, yours. Perhaps you will do something. As we think through our own lives and our own callings, you know, do, do we think of ourselves as God's vessels, directed by His Word, empowered by His Spirit to do what He has called us specifically to do. You have two views here that are just far, far apart. And I think these views often exist in us. So ask yourself to ask God, God, how would you consider me? Who am I, O Lord, when you look down from heaven? When you write about me, what do you say? Am I more on this Jonathan side of things? Or am I more on this Saul side of things? Am I surrendered to your call? Or am I willful, disobedient, foolish? Look at um, Matthew chapter 7. This is a scary passage. And the reason I choose it, because it brings us the two views. And you get those two views when you think about standing before God in heaven. Because there's where you, you can't escape the heavenly view. And so here's a passage in Matthew 7 where uh, it takes us to the throne of heaven and God is looking at the people and giving us his view. First, excuse me, Matthew 7, beginning at verse 15. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So he says, you got two views of people. People who look good like they're in sheep's clothing, but they're really wolves on the inside. Verse 16, you will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? In other words, we don't have to wait till heaven to get the right view. You can know who's got the right view even now by the fruit. Verse 17, so every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce a good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father... 
who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now when I read that passage, let me ask you a question as you read it. Do you see King Saul in there? Do you see King Saul as one of those people that's going to go to heaven? I mean, as I read it, I see King Saul as one of those guys who says, Lord, Lord, did I not do? Did I not pray in your name? Did I not lead the people you gave me? Did I not make oaths? Did I not make vows? And I see Christ saying, yeah, but I never knew you. You didn't have my heart. My heart wasn't in you. You weren't using my law. You were lawless. Meaning you didn't keep my law. You kept your law. You created your own laws. You did things your way. But your focus wasn't on doing things my way. I never, I don't know those kind of folks. You depart into hell. My people keep my word. They hear my voice. They obey. They follow. And as you, as you look at a passage like that, you, it just screams, I need to know the view of God for my life. You do not have to wait. Now, I've, I've talked to people, how do you think you're going to fare on judgment day? They say, well, I hope. Wait, friend, whoa, whoa, whoa. you don't have to hope. You can know now the fruit is on the tree. You can evaluate yourselves and think about your own heart and determine where we are. Can we show that we have a heart that is completely his. Yeah, I used to love that, uh, I think it was a Diet Pepsi commercial, where they'd look at the can and just gaze at it and say, you look marvelous. I want God to be able to say that about me. I want God's view to be a view, you look marvelous. There's no doubt, you're mine. I can see the fruit. That's what we want. That's what we're going for. How do you look to God as you think through that? And what do we need to do? Now, let me say several things. Let me say something about measuring up because people are constantly confused. Do I really have to measure up? Do I really need to know God's law? Do I really need to keep the standard? Absolutely. You have to do everything God requires. 100%. You must measure up everywhere, every day. Can you do that? Absolutely not. None of us can. We all mess up every day. And when we realize how short we fall from God's standard, that should drive us to Christ. Christ, I need you. I need help here. I can't do what God requires. Christ is good. Come to me. Let me change the way you look before the Father. Notice how he wants to change us. Look at Ephesians uh, I think it's chapter 4. Ephesians, no, it's chapter 5. Ephesians 5. Love this. Beginning at verse 25. Talking about husbands love your wives, but then he throws in this description of Christ. So the second phrase of verse 25. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her 
having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So what did Christ come to do? That Christ came to take people who were sinful and messy. He said, I want to sanctify them. And I want to present them before the Father, present them to myself, present them to God without spot or wrinkle or blemish or any such thing. That's good news. The bad news is we look a mess without Christ. The good news is we're without spot or blemish in Christ. So though we need to measure up, Christ measures up for us and then presents us as one who's without spot or blemish. I have never known a day of my life without spot or blemish. I was born with this big hemangioma on the side of my head. My parents tell me the story of coming into the crib one day, and the, the whole crib was just full of blood. They thought their son had died in the crib, bled to death, that hemangioma had busted they quickly realized I was the son that was always covered in blood, in mud, and in sin. I've been covered in some sort of mess all my life. And to one day be able to stand before God in heaven and say, and hear him say, I see you without spot, without blemish, without any wrinkle, without any such thing. You're holy and sanctified, and pure, and clean. That's what I want. I need Jesus for that. You need Jesus for that. Saul needed Jesus for that. You know, we sometimes quote that verse, uh, Psalm 19, verse 14, may the words of my mouth and the, what's the next phrase? Meditations of my heart. The psalmist is saying there, as he goes to his rock and his redeemer, I want you to evaluate the inner man. Not the man people see, not the human perspective, but may what comes out of me from inside, may you look into my heart, what I think about, what I meditate on. I want you to look at that, my rock and my redeemer, and I want you to clean me up. I want you to evaluate me. We need to do that kind of thing. God, look at me and make me marvelous. Look at my meditations. Look at my heart. And that's going to be our next king in 1 Samuel where David says, I know, oh God, a broken spirit and a contrite heart you will not despise. Look at me. And see that I have a heart that's fully God's. That's the view we need to wake up with and live with. I need not to cover all the things people expect of me, but I need to be fully God's, called of Him, surrendered to Him, loved of Him, cleansed of Him, all in for Him. My heart needs to be transformed by Him or I have no hope. Let's pray together. Father, it's, it's sobering to open the Bible and see what's there. But that's why we're here. 
We don't want just happy messages. We want penetrating, piercing evaluations of who we are before you. And so, Lord, we thank you for 1 Samuel 13 and 14. We thank you for this glimpse into how heaven looks at us. And Father, we thank you for Jesus. For without him, we would have no hope of ever looking right, of ever looking clean, of ever being without spot. Find us in Christ, O God. Clothe us with his righteousness. Cleanse us by his blood that we may be holy without spot and without blemish. Father, forgive us for ignoring you. Forgive us for playing with sin. Forgive us for living our lives contrary to your law, thinking it won't matter and your view won't change. Father, help us to be serious before our God, to live our lives broken and contrite before you. For we ask for this grace and this mercy through Christ and Christ alone. Amen. As we take the Lord's Supper together, I want to go back to Psalm 51. I know I quoted verse 17 a minute ago. But let me read to you the first couple verses of Psalm 51. Here David is speaking. He says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your love and kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. What a great prayer. As David evaluates his own life, he says, God, be gracious. It's like Jonathan. Lord, perhaps you would be gracious to a sinner like me. Be gracious to me because you're so great and compassionate. Take this sinner, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. As you see the Lord's table this morning, Christ died because there's no one who has greater love for us, greater compassion for us than one who would lay down his life for us. He laid down his life for us for the purpose of washing us thoroughly, cleansing us from all our sins. So this is your opportunity right where you're sitting to say, Lord, as I think about the evaluation you're doing of me, I need cleansing. I need to be washed thoroughly. I need to be fully yours. It doesn't matter what others think of me. What matters is what you think of me. You think I need the death and sacrifice of Christ. So let me receive it. Let me receive cleansing and forgiveness. And let me walk out of here in new obedience to your law, listening to your word and doing what you say. So that's, that's your prayer. If you want that before the Lord, you're welcome to take of the bread and the wine. If you don't want that, don't play with God. He's serious here. Just let the bread and the wine pass you by. But this is a time where those who hear the voice of God can respond back and take this nourishment that he gives us to remind us of our need for cleansing uh, in him. I'm going to ask the elders and the deacons to come forward and Help me distribute these elements to you so you can there in your seat take as God directs.